Is that coming through? Well, good morning again. Now, if you have a Bible or a scripture journal, go ahead and find your way back to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians. We're going to be starting in chapter 3 this morning in our time in the Word. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. And if you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles, those black Bibles that are sitting around the room, that will be on page 981. Now, as a church, uh, as many of you know, we've been simply walking through this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, known as the book of Philippians to us. We're just looking at verse by verse, chapter by chapter of what was Paul trying to communicate to this church and why for us, right, 2,000 years later, why is it important for us here in Minden, Nevada to be able to look at the same letter and to see the same truths in which he is speaking of? Now, as you are turning there, uh, let me try to wrap our minds around a little bit of what we're going to be talking about today by sharing a quick story. A quick story about, uh, about Gina and I and our, our time up in Reno, really the last days up in Reno before we moved down here. It was about 2014, and uh, Gina and I, we, we were married at this point. We had Mia. The twins were not around yet, uh, but we were looking at coming back down here. Uh, ever since I became a Christian at 19 years old, I have desired to come back down to the Carson Valley to be able to preach the gospel to the herald that good news because I grew up here not knowing Christ. And I, and I know a lot of people in this valley that still do not know Christ, do not know what he has done for them, do not know the salvation that awaits them in him. And so it's my desire, it was always my desire to come back down here. I felt that was a calling that God was giving me. And so we went through a process of really validating that calling, not only internally, but externally with the church that I was serving at. And they agreed that we should come down here. Now, in that last days, though, as we were meeting with one of the pastors who had experience in church planting and, and really church renewal, because we weren't, we weren't really quite sure what ministry was going to look like when we got down here, what we were going to join an existing church or try to start a, a new fellowship. And so we met with one of the pastors who had experience in this area and and he gave us some great advice, some great advice, because he really did know the cost. He knew the effort. He knew the sacrifices that would come when you try to be a proclaimer of the gospel in a world that is against it. And so we met with him, and there was one thing, though, that he said to Gina and I that has always stuck with me. And it was towards the end of our conversation, we talked about, you know, all the ins and outs of church planting and church revitalization and he said, but there's one thing that I need you and Gina to promise me that you're going to focus on. And he looked us in the eye and he said, you need to fortify your marriage. You need to fortify your marriage. And he said, because as you go down there and you try to do this, your marriage is going to be the most important aspect to this ministry. Because your marriage is really going to be your first ministry when it comes to sharing the gospel, when it comes to trying to help other people follow Christ. Your marriage is going to be the foundation when it comes to ministry. Because really, and he said this quite honestly, he said, listen, if you don't pay attention to this, it will likely just be the first domino. And when if it falls, it's going to knock down all the rest. And so he said, fortify your marriage, build strong walls, allow that marriage just to be a place that when those 
conflicts come, when those stressors come, they are going to show up in your marriage more than they show up anywhere else. And so he said, fortify your marriage. Make sure that that's in a healthy spot. Make sure that you guys are on the same page. Make sure that you want the same things. And it was great advice. It was great advice. Um, and I would say that, not perfectly, but Gina and I really committed to doing that when we first moved down here. Is what does it look like to fortify our marriage, to build those strong walls? And, in our, and I'm bringing that up because I think in our text today, what the Apostle Paul is going to be doing with the church in Philippi is he's going to be starting to talk about some of the opposition that's going to come. Some of the areas in which you need to have strong walls in or areas where you need to fortify because there's people that are going to come, they're going to try to derail you from trying to actually follow Christ. They're going to try to imply or lead you in a way that you're taking your eyes off of Christ as your salvation, Christ as your righteousness, and putting it on something else, mainly yourself. And so what Paul is doing here, I believe in the first 11 verses of chapter 3, is he's warning this church, much like that pastor warned us. It's like there will be attacks, there will be things coming, there will be teachings coming your way that will want to derail you from what you actually want to accomplish. And I believe Paul is going to give us just a really good warning of what some of those things are for every single church, including ours. But let me go ahead and just stop there before I actually read that passage for us. I'm going to stop and pray one more time like I always do. And, and I do that because I need prayer. I need prayer to be able to, to rightly preach this word to you. And, and I also know that you need prayer because you want to be able to understand this text in the way that God has intended you to understand it. And we're dependent on somebody else for all of those things. So let's go to him now in prayer. And, and as I pray for you, will you please pray for me? Well, Lord, I, I once again just want to come to you, just knowing that I'm completely dependent on you for everything, and I'm, I'm thankful that we have your word, that we have the, the joy of being able to know you and to, to know some of those dangers that can come into a church like ours. And, and so, God, I pray uh, for this body this morning. I pray for every single person in this room that you would just illuminate the text for them, Holy Spirit that you would allow them to see you for exactly who you are. You, we would be able to see what it means to be in you. We'd be able to see what it means to rejoice in you. God, I also want to pray for our kiddos, for all of our young hearts that are in this building this morning, and for our teachers who are leading them and discipling them. God, I pray as they learn about the same truth, the same promises, the same God in whom we're learning about in big church, so to speak that they would be encouraged and built up just as much. And I pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So hopefully you found that, that spot in the Bible, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Let me go ahead and just read that for us this morning. It reads, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Verse 7, but whatever I gain, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For he, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yeah, we're thankful for God's word. All right, so to begin this section, I want to just remind us, where has Paul been coming from? Right, he's been talking about, in chapter 2, about working out your salvation, right? Working out what God has worked into living a life that shows the worthiness of the gospel. And then last week, we looked at how Paul was going to be sending two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, these gospel encouragers, to come and help this church in, in the same ways that those two men have been helping Paul. And here, Paul is making a little bit of a transition when he says, finally, my brothers, which does not mean finally like he's finished, but he's saying in response to all those things that we've been learning, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord in verse 1, which is an incredibly hermeneutical key to this whole chapter, really this whole book, that Paul is always trying to get us to understand where does joy come from? Where does that joy that is not based on circumstances, that joy that is not based off of what we do or what somebody else has done in order to get us there, but what has Christ done? What has God done? And so he says, one of the most important lines in all the Bible, that we rejoice in the Lord, the only place where it can truly come from. And by the way, at the end of verse 1, he says, to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Paul acknowledges, hey, I've been talking about this for chapters already, and I'm going to repeat it because it's really good for you to know this, which I appreciate because the Bible acknowledges there's guys like me that need things repeated, so I'd get them. And so I'm thankful for that. Paul just unashamedly says, I'm going to write this thing to you because it's actually really good for you to hear it again. It's safe for you. It's safe for you. And basically he's talking about this joy that comes in the Lord and this repetition of, that our hearts need to hear. I want you to look at verse 2. Because he's talking about what is safe for us. He realizes what's, what's a threat to us. And so he says in verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, we've got to stop here for a second. Because some of you are like, wait, what's wrong, what's wrong, with, what's wrong with dogs? Like, why do we have to walk, watch out for dogs? I mean, we, have, we have two dogs in this room right this morning. What's wrong with them? Like, why are we picking on them? I mean, yeah, I mean, sometimes they right, throw up in untimely places. But certainly, like, they didn't do anything wrong. Why do we have to watch out for them, Paul? Well, Paul's not talking about literal dogs, right? 
And in the first century, dogs, by the way, were not pets. They weren't pets. They were actually more like scavengers, um, basically wild dogs that would roam the streets and, you know, eat things that were killed or try to steal your, your chickens or your livestock, more like coyotes for us around here is, is how they viewed dogs. But dogs, this term, the reason why Paul is using it is he's, he's playing on a, a common phrase that was used by Jews uh, that they would call Gentiles dogs, basically communicating that Gentiles were filthy, unrighteous, unwanted, disgraced beings, if you will. But here, Paul is actually using the term against a particular section of Jews. So he's not talking about Gentiles. He's actually saying, no, 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 there's some of you Jews who are dogs, who are, who are filthy, who are unwanted. And that's why he doubles down, I believe, and says that you are evildoers or mutilators of the flesh. Now, let me, let me try to unpack this for us. See, what Paul is talking about, he's talking about to a, a particular section of ostensibly Christians. We don't really quite know, but they were basically these Jewish Christians known as Judaizers. And there was a group of people that were basically following Paul around as he was planting churches. And after Paul had left and went on to plant other churches, all of a sudden these guys would show up and start teaching in the church or trying to get positions of influence. And they would say, yeah, 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 yeah. Paul was right in talking about how it's Christ and what he has done on the cross for you and that he rose for you and he accomplished salvation for you. That's all true, but that's not the end of the story. It's not Christ in Christ alone. It's actually Christ plus you becoming a Jew. You coming under the Mosaic law. That you abiding by these certain um, rules that were laid out in the Old Testament for a Jewish society. So it was Jesus plus the Mosaic law. And in particular, it was Jesus plus circumcision. That in order for you to be truly right with God, truly saved by Christ, you had to also be circumcised. And Paul is saying, no, 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 that's not the place, not, not the case at all. And he even uses really the crass language and says, no, you guys are just actually mutilators of flesh. You think that you have something just because you have removed a certain part of skin, but you... That's not gaining any righteousness with Christ. In fact, that in and of itself, you're just mutilating the flesh. Because he talks about, well, what is, what is a true follower of Christ? What is a true follower of Christ? He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul's saying, you know what the true sign of being in the fold of God is? Is that you are a worshiper of God. That you have, you, your heart has been circumcised spiritually, as the Old Testament alludes to. See, the true Christian is one who glories in Christ Jesus, not themselves. Not someone who is putting their confidence in the flesh. That word flesh, which Paul uses repeatedly in this section. See, because what they were doing is they were putting their confidence in what they did, or what these outwardly signs were. In which they could say, this is how you know that I am right with God. Look at how I am doing these things. Look at my, my life. I don't 
don't worry about what's going on on the inside. Just look at my outward actions or my outward appearance. And Paul despises these men. He calls them evil, right? Calls them dogs. And he's doing that because, like all religion, what it does is, works-based religion, I should say, is it takes the spotlight off of Christ and it puts it back on ourselves and says, it's about me. It's about what I do. And Paul says, these men are evil. And really, I believe what he's going to be doing in verses 5 through 6, and Paul is saying, you, know, you want to even know so much how I know they're evil? is because I have played this game. I have played the game of these Jews. In fact, I was the best at it. If there is anybody that should have been confident in the flesh, confident in what they have done, it was me. I played this game better than anybody. And so he lists out in verses 5 through 6 basically seven aspects of his resume, aspects of what he can be confident in the flesh about. And I want to walk through these a little bit slower because I believe one is Paul is opening up his life for a reason. But then also, I believe that there's aspects of what Paul's going to be talking about in his resume of confidence in the flesh that we still are tempted to do the same thing with. So let's just walk through these, starting in verse 5. The first one is ritual. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. So in, in Jewish custom, it was, it was mandated that Jew, Jewish boys would be circumcised on the eighth day after they were born. They were eighth day. And the reason why that Paul is bringing this up is he wants everybody to know that he's always been a Jew, that, right, he was not a convert. He was not a proselyte that became Jewish later. He's saying, no, no, I was circumcised on the eighth day, right? I was there from the very beginning. Because that was, and for some people, a way that they would say and point to God and say, look at this. Look, I, I, I obeyed from the very beginning. My parents circumcised me on the eighth day. And this is how we do it as, as people, I believe, sometimes, is we could say, well, I've always been in church, right? I've been in church since the day that I was born, right? I, I've been in church the moment that my mom or my dad could get me here. And so it would be easy, I think, for some people, and I've seen this, that they would say, yeah, I'm right with God because I've always been in church. I grew up in church. I was there for every service. I was there for the Wednesday night prayer meetings. I've been right with God from the very beginning. But nobody is born right with God. Despite if you were in church that first Sunday. The second thing he points to in verse 5 is that he was of the people of Israel. So he talks about his ethnicity. Paul says, I was not just circumcised, not just Jewish, but I was actually from the line of Abraham. I was a part of Israel, right? I was a part of the original people of God. I can trace my lineage back to Abraham. And what I think our temptation in the same way is, we could say where we're born somehow justifies our standing with God. In fact, I was listening to a pastor, I listened to semi-regularly, who's a pastor in Texas, and he was telling this story about after one of his services, um, you know, they have time of prayer and discussion, kind of like what we do, where people can come up and, and you know, basically talk to me or somebody else and, and pray or get some follow-up questions answered. And so this young man came up to him, 
And he said, Pastor, I, I don't think actually this following Jesus is working out for me. I don't think being a Christian is actually working out for me very well. And so the pastor's talking to him and asking him questions. And, and it becomes evident in the conversation that he doesn't think that this young man actually knows the gospel or actually knows what it actually means to be a Christian. And so he asks them some of those investigative questions, like, well, tell me, when, when did you become a Christian? When did you understand the gospel? And the young man looked at him and said, well, I'm from San Antonio. And the pastor goes, that does not make you a Christian. See, he thought just because he was from Texas or from the South, that that meant that he was a Christian. And Paul's saying the same thing here. He's like, I'm from Israel. I was from Israel, thinking that that somehow made him right with God in and of itself. Or he goes on and even talks about his rank, that he was not just from Israel, but he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Benjaminite, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in fact, this particular tribe um, held quite a bit of esteem in the Old Testament. It was from the tribe of Benjamin that the first king of Israel came from, Saul, who likely Paul was named after. And so there was this rank, right? There was this heritage. There was this religious pedigree in which Paul says, I was a Benjaminite. Benjaminite. Right? I, had, I had some really important people in my family line. I think in the same way, and unfortunately I've seen this, that there have been you know, young individuals like myself who's, who say, you know how I know I'm right with God is because my dad was a pastor. My mom worked for the church. My grandpa was a pastor. And therefore, I know everything. And I'm right with God because of it. Paul here is pointing out that that does not actually gain you anything with God. He goes on and says that not only was he a Benjamin, not only was he from Israel, not only was he circumcised at the right time, but he says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning that he ate, spoke, dressed Hebrew. Likely, Paul even is trying to emphasize that he spoke Hebrew, which many Jews in the first century didn't do unless you were really well-educated. That he was a well-educated Hebrew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew all of the events, knew all of the festivals, knew all of the Old Testament. In our ways, we could say that I was a private school kid, or I was homeschooled, or I had my first lesson of penal substitutionary atonement at second grade. And what Paul is saying, church, because none of those things are bad, right? It's not bad to be in private school, not bad to be homeschooled, but none of those things justify you in the sight of God. And if we're using them as justification, we're in the wrong. We're in the wrong. He goes on. And he says, <clears throat> starting in verse 6, or at end of verse 5, rather, as to the law, a Pharisee. So he was a rule keeper. So all of those highly religious, important men, which we read about in the gospel accounts, right, in Jesus' life and ministry, those Pharisees that were always, you know, con trying to get into these conversations or arguments with Jesus, Paul says, I was one of those guys. And a Pharisee meant that you were basically this religious expert in the law of God that likely you actually had the whole Old Testament memorized. It's like, I was an expert. I knew the Bible better than anybody else. I was a Pharisee, a high position. 
in the same way, how often can we rely on our own Bible knowledge as justification for our, our walk with God? We can say, because I know this aspect of doctrine, or I have studied under this person, or I went to this seminary, I am somehow more right with God than everybody else. Lastly, or not lastly, he talks about in number six, zeal, starting in verse six. As to zeal, he's a persecutor of the church, right? So not only was he a Pharisee, but he wanted to be a really good, well-known Pharisee. So he was a persecutor of the church. He was one that when he thought somebody was misunderstanding who the Messiah was, misunderstanding, you know, basically what the Old Testament taught, he would go after them. We see this in the book of Acts before Paul's conversion, before he actually meets Christ, that he was orchestrating the deaths of Christians. He was trying to imprison them. He was going after them. He was a Christian terrorist, but he was a Pharisee. He knew the law of God, supposedly, and he was going after basically flexing his Bible knowledge for everybody to know. And, and here's what I want to point out for us is sometimes in our own culture, we can take zeal or passion and emphasize that as some kind of authority. That if we're just really passionate about something, if we're just really sincere about it, then it's okay. It doesn't matter if it's true or right, but as long as we're really sincere about it, we're really passionate about it, then it's okay. And Paul's saying, I was the most zealous person ever to live. And then lastly, he says, as number seven, he says, I was, a, I was confident. I was confident. Righteousness. I had righteousness under the law. Blameless, he says. So when it came to obeying the law of God, I was blameless. So he, he's saying, not only was I, I, I understood the law of God and I taught the law of God, but I was also not a hypocrite. I obeyed it. And I was blameless. That doesn't mean he's sinless. It doesn't mean that he never sinned. But he's saying that he took all the appropriate measures to showcase what the law of God is. So in the eyes of everybody else around him, he was blameless. And we can do the same thing. That I can be right with God based off of who I'm comparing myself to. See, God will be happy with me. I will spend eternity with him because look at this guy. Look at this guy on the news. Or look at this, this guy in my family. His life's a wreck. I'm doing pretty well. Right? We have a tendency to compare ourselves to others in order to justify ourselves to a holy God. So these seven areas, church, these seven areas basically are his resume, his portfolio, if you will. It's a list of all of his accomplishments that he would present, that he could present to a world and say, this is my success. Look at all of what I have done. And in the eyes of the world, and specifically in the eyes of Jewish law, you could say that he was nailing it. He was doing pretty dang good. So he says, if anyone was going to have confidence in the flesh, it was me. Right? If the Judaeers are looking for confidence in the flesh, I have it nailed. But look at verse 7, church. This is what Paul actually starts to unpack what he thinks that that resume actually does in the sight of God. And he says, but whatever, I gain, whatever gain I had, 
So whatever resume I presented, if I presented the best resume, he says, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So what is Paul trying to say to us? What is he saying to this church in Philippi? He's saying, when it comes to my resume, I count it all as loss. If I could, I would hold that up and I would write with big red letters across it, count it as loss. L-O-S-S, right? Big letters saying, you know what I think about this? Loss. I'm willing to rip this up and throw it in the air. And you know why? Because those things actually blinded me to Christ. Because I was trusting in those things, looking at those things. And when I was doing that, I was actually blinded to what, who God actually was. Or what, how I actually stood before him. And that's what Paul was trying to get at. And he's telling this church, church, do not go back to looking at yourselves. Do not go back to this works-based mentality. Because when you start to put your hope in them, you're going to be blinded. And you're not going to be looking to Christ anymore. Christ is not going to be your treasure. These things, my resume blinded me to the salvation that I desperately needed. I was banking on myself. He records in many other places, but when Jesus showed up in his life and revealed himself to him, he realized at that moment that he was completely wrong before. That everything in which he was trusting in was completely wrong. Trash, if you will. And so he's telling these Christians, don't fall for the trap that I fell into. That much of my life that I fell into, where I was boasting in myself and not boasting in the glory of Christ. So Paul says, when you think about these things, when I think about these things, I want you to know that it's all loss. It's all loss. And the reason why it's lost, the reason why it's worthless to me anymore is because of what? Look at the end of verse 8. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Know why it's all lost? Because I now know Jesus. I know what he has done. I know who he is, which is the most important thing for any human to do. In fact, Jesus himself would tell us this in one of the scariest passages, I believe, in the gospel accounts. And I want to show you this. It should be on the screen. It's from Matthew 7, when Jesus is instructing his disciples. Let me read this to you. This is Jesus speaking. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name or do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here's why that's scary, church. Is what Jesus is pointing out, and I believe what Paul is pointing out also, is you can do a lot of good things. You can do a lot of things in the name of the Lord. But the most important thing for you to do is that you would know Christ. I think there's going to be people who, when they die and they they stand in front of a holy and righteous God, they're going to say, didn't I attend church? Didn't I give money? Didn't Didn't I pray when things were going wrong? And Jesus will say, yeah, but I never knew you. I never knew you. 
showcasing that the greatest thing that we could ever do, church, is to know our creator, to know him deeply, personally, intimately, know him as a savior, know him as Lord. So church, let me ask you, do you know Christ? Or are you trusting in what you bring to the table? Or maybe for some of us, right, who, who are in charge of discipling little minds. We have kids. Maybe we have grandkids. We have adult kids. People that are looking to us to learn how to live this life. Are we teaching them that the greatest thing for them to do is to know Christ? Of all the good things that we can give our lives to, what's the most important? Is it that we're teaching them that they would know God above having a a good job, above having a good marriage, good family, all good things, right? But are we teaching them that the most important thing for you to do is that you would know Christ? And Paul says at the end of verse 8 that I'm so thankful that I know Christ as my Lord, and so for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So all the things which he presented in verses 5 and 6, he says, I will, I will lose every ounce of respect or credibility or recognition that came through those things. In fact, I'm willing to count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. All right, and here's your Greek lesson for the day. That word rubbish, it's... Um, one is that word rubbish. That's an elegant translation in our English word. The Greek word is skubalon. Skubalon. It's more accurately, and I don't know exactly why uh, the translators did it this way, but the most accurate translation of this when it's used, because this is actually the only time it's actually used in the New Testament, but the only other time it's used in the first century, when they say skubalon, they mean feces or excrement. It's a crass word. You guys can get, get where I'm going with this, right? So he's saying, you know, when it comes to all of my life, all of my resume, I count it as scuba on when it comes to knowing Christ. That's how I look at it when it comes to knowing him. You see, because if I'm putting all my hope in what I do, it's not going to get me anywhere. But I will gladly count it all as rubbish, all as trash, if it means that I get to know Christ, if I know him. But how do you know if you know him, right? How do you know if you are found in him? As the apostle says, how do you know that you're not falling to the same temptation or false teaching that was racking up through these Judaizers? Right? Where does your righteousness come from? Where does your standing before God comes from? Or maybe you wouldn't frame it like that. But you would say, I don't know if I would say that I, I'm all in on Jesus. I don't know if I would say that I'm fully banking on who he is and what he has done. Or maybe you're just not quite sure. If that's you today, one, I want to encourage you. I'm glad you're here. I hope that you feel welcome here to learn about Christ and learn about why Christians do want to be all in on Jesus but I want to encourage you with where Paul goes, where Paul goes with this section and actually teaching us what does it then mean to know Christ? What does it mean that we're actually trying to do? So let's look at verse 9. 
when he says, and be found in him. I mean, knowing Christ. And he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that be- depends on faith. So Paul is saying, one of the ways that you realize that you are in the Lord or that you are knowing him is you are looking at your life, looking at what you bring to the table and saying, I'm done with it. And I'm going to entrust my life to somebody else. I know that what I do, no matter how good works I do, it will not be enough. Because if I've done one thing wrong, then I have disqualified myself. So it's not a righteousness that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God. So this righteousness, this new resume, if you will, does not come from you. It doesn't come from you resubmitting it, right? Correcting it and resubmitting it. It actually comes from God. God says, no, you can't do enough, but I have. And so I'm going to give you my righteousness, a righteousness that comes from God. Or as theologians would say, it's an imputed righteousness. So a righteousness that's given to you, it's imputed to you. It's not something that you bring to Christ. It's something that he gives to you based off of his life. It's a righteousness that's outside of you, a righteousness from another. It's from God. You know, Martin Luther, he's a, he was one of the reformers in the 16th century when he's talking about righteousness and this righteousness that comes from God, he actually started using the term, it's alien righteousness. Not like you think of like space aliens, but he's talking about like alien, like it's, it's so not from you, it's from outside of you. It's an alien righteousness. It doesn't come from anywhere in you. It comes from somebody else completely, somebody else completely outside of you. So it was given by God, achieved by Christ. And Paul says, it's appropriated by your faith in him. You see, we can spend our whole lives, right, on that treadmill of religion trying to be good enough, right, trying to add things to the work of Christ. But Paul is pleading, right, he's pleading with the Philippians, don't turn back. Don't go back to what you do in order to be right with God. Trust God. Believe that he has imputed his righteousness to you for your justification right, for your right standing before God. Because don't get me wrong, though, right, Paul's been talking about living a certain way as Christians, right? He's been talking about all throughout chapter 2. But those, he's talking about living those things as a Christian, not in order to become a Christian. It's entirely different motivation. And I think actually Paul gives us a motivation in verses 10 and 11. Look at it with me. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Oh my goodness, you guys. This is so encouraging that Paul, who actually does know who Christ is, right? He actually does know the power of Christ. He's been transformed by the person and work of Jesus, that he trusted Christ and what he did on the cross. He understands the power to take his self-righteous heart and give him a new heart based off the righteousness of Christ. He understands the power of God, right? He knows Christ in that salvific way. But here he says in verse 10 that there's actually more that he can know, that he wants to know him. He wants to know Christ more. He wants to know the power of the resurrection 
more. Because he knows the more that I get to focus on Christ, the more I get to place all of my, my chips onto his square, the more I get to see his power, the more that I get to revel in his glory. It says even the more I get to share in the sufferings with him. Because Paul has been talking about sufferings actually lead to this greater dependence on God, this greater acknowledgement of who Christ is. He knows how if he suffers, then he gets to actually depend and proclaim Christ all the more, right? To live as Christ, to die as gain, but to live as Christ. And he says, I get to be more like him. I get to know him more. That's really what sanctification is. And then in verse 11, he says, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's where we talk about glorification, right? That he is perfected. That that final resurrection in which he gets to be reunited with this internal body. And what Paul is saying, he's not like questioning, like, I hope it happens. Or I hope it, you know, I, I did enough. That's not what he's saying. That completely contradict everything he just said. But what Paul is saying is, I don't know when it's going to happen. Right? I don't know if Jesus is going to come back while I'm still alive. Or if I'm going to die before then, then I get to wait for that final resurrection when Jesus comes back to consummate his kingdom. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to it, to attaining that resurrection of the body. So church, as we just kind of start to end our time in the word, I hope you see that when you count it as loss, what we're talking about is simply being able to walk out these doors, not with this burden is, have I done enough? Is God happy with me? At that last day, are my good deeds going to outweigh my bad deeds? Paul is saying that's not the question. The question is, do I know Christ? Because if I know him, I can look at my good deeds, I can look at my bad deeds and count them all as loss because of what Christ has done for me. And I pray that's the case for every single one of us in this room. That you would know Christ. That you would get off that, rid that treadmill of religious performance, trying to be good enough when you never can be, but you would embrace, oh, just the, the, the freeingness of being able to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you can do all the things which are expected Christians to do because you're a Christian already, right? And you have the righteousness of Christ, that he doesn't unsave you, right? He's not going to come to you one day and say, give it back. If he has revealed himself to you, if he has given you his righteousness, by your belief and trust in him, that will never change, Christian. And you can walk out of these doors floating in a way because you now have the imputed righteousness of Christ forever. And one day you will experience all the glory that comes from it. But until then, we just look at everything that the world tells us. Hey, focus on this. Hold this up for your glory. Hold this up for the world to say that you're a success. And you go, no, 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 no. That's not what gives me success. I got Jesus and what he has done. I know him. And we can work hard because we have that. All right, church, let's go ahead and end there and let's pray. Well, Father, I thank you for our time in this passage of scripture this morning. Lord, I pray that we would take these ideas, maybe we know them, maybe it's not the first time that we've 
read words like righteousness or, or, or how we know Christ. Or maybe it is for the first time. We're, we're really understanding what sets followers of Christ apart from everybody else in the whole world. That we're not just another religion that's trying to earn our way to a right standing with God, but we're a people who acknowledge that we couldn't, but someone came and lived a life that we couldn't live and died a death we deserved. And so we now desire to know him, believe him, trust him for his glory and our good. I pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus.